Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Our cells communicate with ultraviolet light, extremely low frequency, very weak ultraviolet light, but nevertheless, ultraviolet light. Our cells communicate with ultraviolet light. Our DNA emits and absorbs ultraviolet light. And so the question would be, well, if ultraviolet light is so absolutely horrible and toxic, why would our cells communicate with it? This is research that is very, very well established, but dermatologists just, I guarantee you, out of 100 dermatologists, 100 of them haven't heard of this just because it's not really particularly convenient. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable, everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today we have a conversation all about light. And we are talking about circadian misalignment. We talk about moonlight. We talk about other forms of light, but in particular, how we can be getting blue light toxicity from living indoors, how this is leading to hormonal derangement, how it is driving obesity in both adults and children alike, and of course, impairing our detoxification capacity. My guest today is Matt Maruka. He is the CEO and founder of Raw Optics, which is a blue light blocking glasses company. And as you might imagine, we jump into some of the topics that I mentioned. So we talk about are you team sunscreen or are you team uh, sunlight? We talk about melanolite, melanocyte stimulating hormone, pardon me. Uh, we talk about ultraviolet radiation. We talk about tans. We talk about aging of the skin. We talk about gray hairs, appetite suppression, all of the things that you might expect from a conversation about light. And of course, we also talk about moonlight and menstrual cycles. We talk about contact lenses and glasses and LASIK and how that might be affecting our ability to filter in good light. Overall, a very dense conversation around circadian and infraradian misalignment and some of the things that we can do to begin to correct it. If you love this show or others, I would love to hear from you and please leave a review. It is a no cost way to show your support for the work that we are putting out. If you put it on Apple or Spotify or wherever you are listening to on YouTube, we read them all, I promise, and it does help us direct future episodes. Much appreciated. Helps me know that it's not just me that finds this stuff interesting. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Matt Maruka. I am a 
huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Elementy Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Matt Maruka, CEO and founder of Raw Optics. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Stephanie. As I was just saying to you in the pre-chat, we haven't actually had someone on the show talking properly about light and the effects that it has on our natural rhythms. So we're going to talk about circadian rhythm today. I think I'll also throw in my hat to talk about uh, uh, other rhythms, female-specific rhythms like our menstrual cycle and different types of light like moonlight. Um, But before we kind of dive into that, maybe it's worth defining (laughs) what light is. So what is full spectrum light? How would you define it? Yeah, yeah. Well, light and full spectrum light would be two sort of different. I I can do both. So light is a very interesting phenomenon in the universe. It's um, as far as physicists and scientists understand now, there are four fundamental forces in physics. There's the weak nuclear force, 
the strong nuclear force, which are both involved in atoms and holding atoms together and how the nuclei of atoms work. Then there's the gra gravitational force, and then there's the electromagnetic force. And they also now call these interactions, so the four fundamental interactions. And the whole purpose of physicists at this point is to try to unify all of these forces that are basically underpinning the way everything we understand in the universe works. And they haven't been able to find a unifying theory, but they're working on it, at least in classical modern science. Anyway, so light is an emergent property of the electromagnetic interaction or the electromagnetic force. It's There's a few different perspectives about light, uh, both of which I believe can be true. And they're sort of figuring out how they can both exist at the same time. But light acts as a particle and a wave. So there's these photons, which are like discrete particles of light. But then light also acts as a wave. So there's a electric and magnetic field, which are perpendicular to each other, which move through space when uh, just as the result of electromagnetic interactions, basically. So light's essentially a carrier of energy. It's it's a way energy is is moved and it's very foundational in the universe because it was created according to, again, classical physics and understanding of the origin of the universe. It was created very early on. So there was sort of this big bang, which you could say is, was sort of a vibrational occurrence, and then light came shortly after. And it's really interesting if you look at most spiritual traditions, uh, light was one of the foundational pieces in all of creation or the origin of the universe. So, you know, uh, it's interesting in, in the account of the Bible, God spoke, which is vibration, and there was some sort of vibrational energy before there was light. And then he said, let there be light and there was light. And that's what the Big Bang effectively says. There was a big explosion. And for a period, there was uh, just energy in some form or another. And then light was created as everything split into positive and negative charge shortly thereafter. Um, and, and then there was light. So anyway, uh, it's interesting <laughs> how these things line up. So anyway, that's what light is. It's just a care. It's basically movement of energy through space and time. Now, uh, full spectrum light, when we talk about referring to sunlight, full spectrum light would be the full extent of the wavelengths of the sun that reached the earth that we evolved with. So the sun actually has a much broader spectrum than what comes to the earth. So it goes, you know, all the way, it emits pretty much everything from x-rays and uh, all sorts of gamma rays and, and cosmic radiations, very damaging to ourselves. We wouldn't survive with that. People would get, it's like Chernobyl, people would get radiation poisoning very quickly. And, and disintegrate, literally. And then on the other side, there's radio waves and microwaves, much slower waves of light. And these are also emitted from the sun, but they're not as prominent in our on our planet because a lot of these things don't make it through the atmosphere. Anyway, so when we talk about full spectrum sunlight, what we're referring to is the light from the sun that comes to us on the earth through the atmosphere. And so, for example, not full spectrum light would be an example of light that's not full spectrum would be light that's passing through a window because windows filter out different components of the light. For example, they filter out a lot of near infrared, which is a really crucial component for our health. Sometimes they filter out UVB or UVA light, some of the ultraviolet ranges. And just to make that really simple and easy for people, 
the sun that we evolved under is something that we evolved to. So our biology is accustomed to that sun. We have systems to adapt to increase ultraviolet levels, increase levels of blue light. We have ways to protect ourselves or at least to sense that we've gotten enough sun that we need to get in the shade, for example. So there's all these sort of protection systems. We can develop a tan, we can get hot and want to go in the shade. Like if you laid out under African sun for 12 hours, you'd probably die. You'd get heat stroke and die. Um, so, you know, we're not, or you'd burn until you had third degree burns and you'd maybe die of dehydration. So uh, it, it's like, we're not meant to just be in the sun all the time, although it's an energy source from us, just like water is useful for health. You wouldn't want to drink water 24 seven all day long and constantly chug it. You know, it wouldn't, you'd probably die. So anyway, um, but when we, when we distort the spectrum, so it, it, instead of the extreme of overdosing on sunlight, we could either underdose and have too little. That's one thing which many people suffer from. Most of our society suffers from. But another way we do that is not by necessarily avoiding the sun, but by getting sun filtered through windows or by having too much artificial light, which is basically a, a man-made trick, if you will, that stimulates our visual system so we can see things in our environment. So we see light bouncing off of objects. So we think, oh, the light's out, I'm good. But the, the quality of the light that allows us to see things in, an, in our environment also happens to have a huge impact on our health because what the scientists forgot who have banned the incandescent bulbs and those in, in charge of, uh, let's say, policy is that, well, not that they even forgot, but they didn't know, is that light first is a driving force of evolution in life. So light gives life energy and is we could say the primary source of energy for life on earth. Vision is a secondary process after the, the first, the emergence of life. So what I'm getting at is that we've come to think that light is just something that we see, but actually I would say light is something that we are. It's something that makes up who we are. And it's our interaction with light in our, in our environment is so crucial to not just functioning in the environment so like vision what vision allows us to do but actually functioning period not just functioning in space and moving around but actually our biological function is dependent on light and so if we trick our brain to think that we can see everything and so oh we're good but we're under a incomplete spectrum of light then our biology suffers we might still be able to walk around the office or walk around the school or walk around home but never really in history until we created artificial lighting were you able to kind of operate and see things out of the spectrum of sunlight in other words the only other light sources might have been moonlight which is relative very very dim compared to the sun still has its, its own effects and i know you mentioned that might be something you'd want to touch on um starlight even dimmer than moonlight but very very beautiful uh firelight obviously that's quite bright if you're close to it, but that doesn't have any blue light. So for example, it doesn't disrupt our body's circadian rhythm, which is set by the power of the sun and then bioluminescent animals. There may be a few other lightning would be another example. So maybe five forms of natural light besides the sun and nature, none of which are very bright and none of which last for a very long time, except maybe fire. But again, it's different and we can talk about that. So anyway, that's, that's what light is. That's what the full spectrum light we refer to is. And that's kind of just an overview of how light can affect our, our health and why it's relevant.
Beautiful. I want to dissect a little, I want to dissect full spectrum and focus for a moment on blue light, if we may, because this yeah. is, and in, in terms of my understanding of blue light, this is the light that sets or controls, let's say, the circadian rhythm. It's what mm-hmm. sets off when we see blue light, let's say in the morning, you know, hits the retinal ganglionic cells, goes up to the SCM, which is mm-hmm. a supra charismatic nucleus, nucleus yeah, yeah which is our master uh, regulator master clock and sort of starts some of these things so let's let's talk about blue light potentially why we hear things like and maybe blue light and maybe we can actually talk a little bit about ultraviolet light in this question as well because i know that uva and uvb lights typically have been demonized um by dermatologists primarily. <laughs> it's like we all learned like UVA is the A is for aging and UVB, the B is for burning. Talk a little bit about why blue light does set or does control, let's say, the circadian rhythm and potentially why it's important to be exposed. Obviously, the dose and the timing is important, but why it's important to be exposed to blue light um, at, let's say, certain times of the day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So blue light is the component of sunlight. Scientists know this today that sets our body's circadian rhythm, as you said. So blue light is a component of that full spectrum. So when we say full spectrum light on earth, it goes from basically, depending on which direction you go, you can start at red or near infrared or far infrared, even far infrared, near infrared or infrared C, B, and A, and then you go to red, and then the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet, and then ultraviolet A, ultraviolet B, and occasionally ultraviolet C, if the sun's particularly strong or the atmosphere is particularly weak. And that's that's the extent of it. So anyway, blue light, you know, I, I can't say that I know God or creation exactly and why these things were picked the way they are. We just see that they are the way they are based on science. So anyway, blue light was chosen, let's say, to be the timekeeping wavelength or the range of light that's responsible for timekeeping. There are other effects to blue light as well, but this is one of the main effects. So blue light basically stimulates our body's clock. Um, And so, for example, sun comes up in the morning. There's a huge change in the percentage of blue light as the sun rises. So as the sun gets higher in the sky, there's less atmosphere it's passing through to reach the observer on the surface of the earth. There's less atmosphere filtering the sun and therefore more blue light and more ultraviolet light as well comes through because these wavelengths are filtered due to the properties of the atmosphere and the way light interacts with it. These shorter wavelengths, higher frequency, more power per photon and therefore potentially more damaging, they're filtered the most when the sun is at a low angle in the sky and and is going through more atmosphere. When it's passing through less atmosphere, that's why they say when you can't see your shadow or when your shadow gets shorter, there's more ultraviolet light around because the sun's higher up, there's less atmosphere that it's passing through. And so therefore more ultraviolet, more blue light. So anyway, the blue light shifts very significantly. It's always present, but it shifts in the sun from very, very little at sunrise and sunset to quite a lot in the middle of the day. So it makes sense as a timekeeping mechanism it it makes sense that that would be selected by biology for that purpose because it's very powerful, it's present, and it changes a lot. There's times when ultraviolet's not present throughout the year, or at least ultraviolet B, ultraviolet A doesn't come sometimes till a little bit later in the morning. Blue light's around, it changes a lot. So it makes a lot of sense. Anyway, 
So with that being said, if we lived in nature, if we lived outdoors, if we lived in teepees or caves or even outdoor houses where, you know, we just go into sleep, but you go out when you wake up and work, you know, people in even 500 years ago working on farms uh, and so on slept in their house, maybe ate in their house, but more than likely spent most of their time outdoors during the day, right? Our skin adapted to that for the most part where we lived. So for example, my ancestors would have been in Ireland, England, and across Northern and Central Europe, uh, some in Italy. I didn't really get the Italian gene so much. It's maybe 10 or 20%. But um, so our skin adapts to that. There's people obviously whose ancestors come from Africa and their skin is adapted for a very different environment, obviously. And we can see that they're much, much more capable of protecting from harmful effects of excess sunlight compared to someone like me who would French fry in a couple of minutes, even on in the equator on, uh, in the middle of the day. So it's, there's different advantages, you know, some skin tones evolved for, those places, some skin tones of all further. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting on a different, on a different direction now, but, but anyway, so with blue light, we, we need to, we would have been outside is the point in nature. And so now that we've created these dwellings that we spend most of our time inside, and then we have windows, the windows are kind of like what I was saying about artificial light earlier, where it's a trick for our brain. So the light passes through a window. So basically what we're doing is we're blocking out the rain we're blocking out the wind, we're blocking out the cold, we're blocking out bugs and dirt and things we don't want in our house from the outside environment. But why do we use windows at all? It's a great question. Well, because we need light, we need the light to see and think and function and feel. We know that if you had a house without windows, it'd be miserable. It would be terrible. And so that we we actually know that we need the light. That's why we use windows to let the light in. Um, and and it, that it's so much more enjoyable than artificial light and that houses with lots of windows are often much more pleasant and pleasurable to be in. But what we don't realize is that the glass or plastic that the windows are made of typically, typically filters, again, key wavelengths of the light that have different effects on our physiology, like near infrared, like ultraviolet A, like ultraviolet B. Uh, and when we get into this game of filtering wavelengths, you can kind of say it like all bets are off because it's not really well studied in summer. And yeah, it's not really well studied in the literature how distorting the spectrum of light can affect our health. It's not something people have been particularly interested in. Some people have. Anyway, all that's to say, when we do that move to the indoors, we're no longer getting that daily setting of the rhythm from the blue light, which would have been a guarantee for all of time that you just wouldn't have avoided it unless you stayed deep, deep in your cave or, you know, sequestered in your little abode, which again, usually there were probably most people were living except royalty and smaller dwellings and and most likely getting out even if you lived in a city in an apartment uh you know when cities really began to crop up more and more obviously there were civilizations like people were outside right now the average person spends 92 percent of their time indoors in the united states it's like 86 in indoors and six percent in a car so that's that's really disruptive to our biology as as beings that are dependent on the for example in this one case the blue light to set our body's rhythm which stimulates and puts in motion the production of our key hormones and neurotransmitters there are many other effects we'll get into but that's the gist of why we need the blue light because it sets all of our hormones and neurotransmitters up and now we've moved indoors we don't get that so we actually have to like make it whereas it would have been normal before now we have to make an effort to get out of our house 
and get the light that sets our body to work properly. Make sense? Yeah, that that makes sense. And I uh, have on my phone an app. It's called, uh, I think it's Lux or Lux Meter, something like that. Um, and you can go out and you can really see the difference between light in a sunny room indoors and outdoors. So I can have, you know, I don't know, 20,000 or 16 or whatever it is, Lux uh, in the morning if I'm outside, which is just the unit of measures of light. And then you, when you go inside, even in the sunniest room in my home, it's like 5,000, you know, 4,000 Lux, if if that, right? So it's it's really, uh, and I believe it's Lux meter. Yeah, have, it, would be, to, it would be Lux. Yeah, I have to look, I would have to look it up. I'll put it in the show notes, but um yeah, it's really interesting to see the the difference in the amount of light that's being filtered. And to your point, when we're filtering out the blue lights, the ultraviolet lights, and the near infrareds via windows, then we're not we're not we may think that it's bright and sunny. We may think that we're getting um, some of that circadian setting uh, potentially, but it's really quite absent. Yes. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about. I, I mentioned dermatologists and. Um, a lot of my audience is female. Where do you where do you fall on sunscreen? Um, yeah. Because I think that this is, and I have I have friends who go they walk with they have you know sixty SPF all over their body at all times, even when they're indoors, and then they have these visors. They have these, vi- <laughs> and they just to me. I'm sorry if any of you do this. I'm not, you know. I'm not blowing shade, but it's just, it looks ridiculous. Like they, there's these sort of visors that come over and protect the face and the, let's say the chest area and the neck area. Where, where do you fall on sunscreen as a, as a, and, and this comes back to sort of the UVA and UVB question, because a lot of dermatologists, you'll hear them talk about this idea that UVA is aging. We want to block all of that out and UVB is burning. We want to block all of that out. So, you know, using sunscreen can potentially extend your time in the sun while also filtering out some of these ultraviolet lights. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I would just challenge the, the premise, which is that the sun is bad for us, actually. Um, we've already challenged it a bit with my explanation that the sun that we are light so we're this is more of an esoteric conversation although there's a lot of science actually supporting it it might sound esoteric it's, it's actually not um so anyway we are light um that's our consciousness that's our cells communicate with ultraviolet light extremely low frequency very weak ultraviolet light but nevertheless ultraviolet light our cells communicate with ultraviolet light our dna emits and absorbs ultraviolet light and so the question would be well if ultraviolet light is so absolutely horrible and toxic why would our cells communicate with it this is research that is very very well established but dermatologists just i guarantee you out of 100 dermatologists 100 of them haven't heard of this just because it's not really particularly convenient uh, for them. So anyway, that's one. Two, why is it so generally understood that somebody with a tan is more sexually attractive? Like, why would our body and, and organisms be drawn to people who have a nice, healthy tan who are radiating and vibrant if tanning were so bad for us? It's actually not. It's actually an indicator of really good health. Uh, Burning is not healthy. That's a different conversation. But having a nice tan is very good for our biology. It basically means that our cells are working properly. It means that our cells are able to produce the hormones they need to protect from, you know, excess ultraviolet light. It means the system's working well. People actually 
radiate, they glow positive energy when, when they have a tan. And it, it is, it is very attractive and everyone knows that. And so people try to do spray tans and kind of fake things that, that don't really work. They don't have the same effect. Um, so anyway, that's another thing. If this, if the sun were so toxic for us, why would, why would our biology be so drawn to those who have that light in them? And, and also why would it reward us? We, we actually, our brain, there's articles I've read about this. They're quite funny and contradictory. They don't quite make sense, but basically scientists saying like, well, you know, if the sun's so bad for us, because that's their assumption, why does our brain make beta endorphin opioid like chemicals to reward our body for sun exposure? You know, we don't want to overdose. And that's another issue with sunglasses that when people wear sunglasses, they turn off to a great extent, the body's a, you, you know, you mentioned melanocyte stimulating hormone, there's evidence that UVB light through the eye stimulates the production of melanocyte stimulating hormone, and therefore helps the body to tan. So in other words, our eye is the sensor, light comes in the eye tells the body and the brain how much lights in the environment, and then we can actually tan more based on that it stimulates that process. So if we wear sunglasses, we turn off that system. And we also can turn off the system just of overall light intensity, which says, Hey, it's too bright, get in the shade. You know, so people increase their risk of burning and skin cancer, etc. wearing sunglasses. Now, here's the question, would wearing sunscreen protect you from that? The answer is no, because sunscreens are full of toxic chemicals for the most part. The only ones that aren't are generally mineral sunscreens, which no one wants to wear, because if you're vain and you're concerned about your appearance, you're not going to wear a sunscreen that makes your skin white, which is what mineral sunscreens are. You're going to wear something that absorbs into your skin. Well, what happens when it absorbs into your skin? Any chemicals that are irradiated by ultraviolet light, which is very powerful light, become unstable. Ultraviolet light breaks chemical bonds between chemicals. And so when chemical bonds are broken, the chemicals whose bonds were broken look to steal electrons from other chemicals. So you put chemicals, said chemicals on your skin, irradiated by ultraviolet light. They are not 99% effective, not even close at absorbing and bringing down this intensity of light from ultraviolet. The only thing that does that is melanin, which is natural sunscreen, which I'm all about. I'm all about people improving their body's natural sunscreen systems and getting out of the sun when their body's had enough. But so anyway, melanin's great at taking that ultraviolet light, slowing it down effectively and dissipating that energy in a way that's good for our body actually. But the chemical sunscreens, which try to replace the body's melanin. So it's all trying to copy internal biological systems that already exist. They're not fully effective at dissipating the ultraviolet light. What does that mean? It means that a certain percentage of that chemical, these active ingredients in these sunscreens will be degraded. The chemical bonds are broken. They're looking to steal electrons. Guess where that is? It's in your bloodstream because you put it on your skin. And when it's on your skin, where does it go? It goes in your blood. So now you're putting toxic chemicals that have been maybe not toxic, before they were irradiated by ultraviolet light, but now they're really toxic and they're in your bloodstream and they're causing inflammation and problems in your, in your body. So it's like, to me, it's insane. And the fact that anybody wears sunscreen is insane, especially when I've been saying this for six years and many other much more experienced and knowledgeable people have been saying this for much longer, but and sunscreens were way worse before, as far as the percentage that's degraded and becomes super toxic and inflammatory. But anyway, they're better, but they're still horrible. And then like last year, last summer, two summers ago, they were recalling all of the major sunscreens because they were, the chemicals were proven, benzene and these other chemicals were proven to be carcinogenic. So it's like anybody who's wearing sunscreen is like, no offense, but 
what are you doing? <laughs> like, what, what are you doing? Why do you trust the pharmaceutical and dermatological industries? It's like, I don't want to bring up the parallel, but it's like another thing that I think you're probably pretty familiar with, which, you know, people are just trusting the system. And it's, um, how do I say this? <laughs> I don't have any people problem with people trusting the system, but people have to understand that the system they're trusting's incentives is making money off of people who are sick and not getting people to be well, sadly. And so anyway, that's that's my stance on sunscreen. I think it's a really, really bad idea. The best sunscreen is called shade or a shirt. That's it. And even better, I should say, is melanin. Melanin is amazing. It's a master, amazing chemical that has so many phenomenal functions in our body. And when we go in the sun without sunscreen, we make melanin. It allows us to function in all sorts of ways better biologically. It allows us to use light in all kinds of different ways. And it's something that we make naturally and protects us naturally. And if your body is not designed to be in, let's say, Florida sun in the middle of the day for five hours, go in the shade. Like, don't be vain and think, oh, I need to get a little more tan. It's actually bad for people to overdose on sun. So I'm with you. I'll, I'll add, I'm with people on not overdosing on sun, probably more than most. Like, I don't think people should be in the sun more than they should be. And I would never use sunglasses or sunscreen to extend somebody's time laying out in their bikini on the beach because that's bad for them. Okay. All right. I hope a, that the, makes sense. Yeah, no, that's that makes sense. I'm, I'm so happy that we went here because I, I, I have, um, for me, I think, and I think I'm parallel with you in that I think that the dose and the timing matters. Right. So sure this does. early morning, this early morning light, let's say that we've been talking about where we have this higher concentration of these this blue light, the sun is not as strong. Typically, it's like that 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. sort of range where the sun gets higher and higher in the sky, the, the, the solar, you know, and, and we have, you know, uh, more intensity, let's say you were saying before, as your as your shadow uh, gets shorter and shorter, um, is a, I would say a time to, if you can, uh, avoid being outside for extended periods of time, especially if you're not going to be wearing yeah. sunscreen and sunglasses, as we've been talking about. And Unless you're somebody whose ancestors come from Colombia or, you know, the Andes Mountains or Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and then you live in Detroit or something like that, then in that case, it would be really smart to be out more in the middle of the day because uh, people with uh, darker skin take six times longer to make the same amount of vitamin D as someone with the lightest skin or vice versa. Someone with lightest skin makes vitamin D six times faster. And the reason is just because the skin is far more translucent when it's lighter. And again, that's great if you live in Ireland and there's no sun. It'd be really, 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 really bad if you lived in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, which is, you know, I love to be in tropical places like Bali and Costa Rica, but I have to be extremely careful about my sun exposure. And sometimes I get too hot, I can't even go outside. So it all depends on people's context. Somebody with much darker skin would benefit more from getting out when the sun is stronger if they live in a place where the sun is generally weaker than the equator or the tropics. But someone with light skin who is living in Florida or in Costa Rica or Bali or anywhere like that, or even 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 Georgia or even Philly in the summer is, is very strong sun, should be careful. I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, that's why I bring it up. But you know, you should just be be aware and be careful and not overdose for sure. Like burning, bad idea. Yeah. And I, you know, to throw in an example there, my ancestors are Lebanese and Portuguese. So I have uh, Mediterranean ancestors and I live now in Toronto, Canada. So we have so you take those 
you know, you take that skin that is very used to being in more of a hotter Mediterranean uh, climate for most of the year, uh, and then you plop that, you plop those genes, you plop that melanin, uh, that, you know, capacity for production in a, an environment like Toronto, uh, and I have to work harder to get my son, and, you know, I've, yeah. done, gen- I've done genetics and, and, you know, to look at my vitamin D um, uh, binding capacity, and it's much lower, partially because someone with my constitution the our genes sort of expect based on where I'm from that I am going to be in a sunnier environment. So there's always mm-hmm. going to be that capacity to be able to bind um, vitamin D. So I, your your point yeah. is well taken. Um, and just let's talk a little bit about MSH for a moment. I said in the pre-chat, I wanted to talk about melanocyte stimulating hormone. Um, and because we're talking about sunscreen, I think that this is really important because it is as it as the name suggests, it helps to stimulate the production of melanin, right? But that is in direct response to ultraviolet radiation, as you mentioned. And melanin itself protects cells from DNA damage, right? So this is the cancer-causing, melanoma-inducing kind of... Like, melanin is our best protector, uh, at least, or we can say best natural protector, yeah, yeah. Um, for a protection against skin cancer, um, I guess my question here, um, or maybe where, you know, so I, I said my, my opinion is sort of the dose and the timing matters, but if you've had someone who has had skin cancer in the past, who's had melanoma or continues to have these sort of patches that need to be removed, let's say, um, what is the, do you have any sort of thoughts on, you know, previous history of someone with cancer in terms of their sunscreen use, or is it? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about skin cancer, it's really interesting. I mean, I would step back and say, like, we have a cancer epidemic in every kind of cancer, and the skin is another organ. Um, So if we look at cancer as a very isolated thing, occurrence, or if we try to break it apart, you know, it's, it's easier to say that cancer is skin cancer, for example, oh, it must be caused by sunlight, because that's the environmental factor that's potentially damaging that can, you know, affects our skin. Um, I wouldn't say, so I used to have a much more, I'd say, a a lacking, a flawed thought process on this, to be honest. I was following different experts who are very much in the camp of like sunbathe as much as you can, like the sun's all good all the time. And, and I kind of took some of that energy and thought, oh yeah, people should get as much sun as they can. I've started working more recently with one of the top experts in the world in this field, uh, truly a genius uh, from Germany, and he'd, he'd be a great guest at some point if you're interested. But anyway, he has helped me understand a bit more of the nuance to it and and has also led me to believe, as I've shared, you know, just in your previous question, that we don't want to overdose. I, I already knew that, but we should be careful, right? It's important to be careful. You don't just want to go out and bathe until you're really close to burning even. You know, you want to just get what your body needs. Now, all that's to say, he... he brought my awareness to a greater understanding of the fact that if you were constantly overdosing on sunlight and ultraviolet light, yeah, you might be able to cause skin cancer or you might be able to trigger skin cancer. Um, Anyway, the reason I bring up the whole cancer discussion overall is because we have to put things into a greater context. Practically everyone in the United States is being poisoned, if you will, by things like glyphosate, which has been proven to be carcinogenic and it's in not just the United States, presumably all of North America, uh, Mexico as well. 
So I think it's outlawed it in Europe, but I'm 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 pretty confident that you can still get it in Canada and the states. They're still actively using it, or maybe they. Yeah. I think they might have just stopped. But these are these are sort of. Oh, they're not uh, stopping in the states for sure. But in, oh, in Europe, okay. in Europe, it's less. Um, but but it's like the it's the critical herbicide Roundup that allows them to harvest crops without worrying about them basically becoming moldy because they spray a ton on the crop after it's been harvested or as it's being harvested and it's mm -hmm. uh, it dries it up so it doesn't get moldy. But so previously they only used Roundup on plants that were growing just to kill the the other weeds and things that would compete in the field. Uh, they figured out that they could actually use it toward the end of the growing cycle and when it's being harvested to prevent it from again becoming moldy because it dries it up very quickly. But then this chemical roundup, which the active ingredient of which is glyphosate is now being put on people's food. So anyway, this has been proven to cause cancer. So the reason I bring that up is because there's so many different offensive chemicals in our environment that have been proven to cause cancer that we're all exposed to now, including some of the things in sunscreen. Um, toxic diets, obviously, full of seed oils have been shown to have all sorts of negative effects on health, even potentially the development of cancer. We fill our skin when we eat a bunch of these toxic oils that are the basis of the majority of, you know, most people's calories today is, is a lot of it's refined carbohydrates and a significant portion of their fats are these trans fat or, you know, hydrogenated or just really toxic omega-6 seed oils like soybean oil, canola oil. Which makes up the phospholipid bilayer is basically what you're sort of leading to, right? This makes the sort of the lining of each cell. We have this phospholipid bilayer, yes. which is all fat. Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is, and, and there's evidence to support this, that we're putting these toxic fats into our cell membranes, and these are much more easily oxidized and damaged by sunlight as opposed to more stable fats like saturated fats or omega-3 fats, again, depending on which kind of omega-3 fats somebody's eating if they're from seafood or they're from a refined source that's now in a, in a pill that's much more unstable. And so anyway, when we're getting this light, it's easy to see how, I would say it's, it's relatively easy to see how this, we change the conditions of our skin, we've changed the conditions of our environment so that whereas not long ago, skin cancer wasn't very common. And people will say, oh, well, it just wasn't reported as often. No, it just wasn't that common. People just weren't dying of skin cancer. It just wasn't really a thing in my grandparents' generation. You could ask any of your grandparents, you know, just people didn't die of Alzheimer's, people didn't die of heart disease. It just didn't really exist. A lot of these diseases did not exist before we made such r massive changes to our environment. So all of this is to say that if somebody's asking for my belief, what I tell them is, we evolved under the sun for billions of years, literally. We adapted to the wavelengths of sun in our local environments over the past several thousands of years, tens of thousands of years or so, or even just a few thousand years. We've moved in mass migrations over the last 500 years to places with different levels of sunlight, which can be a risk, but isn't inherently a risk. Even then, skin cancer wasn't that big of a deal you know, within the last 100 years or so, 100 years ago, I should say. In the last like 20 to 30 years, and even more recently, skin cancer rates are skyrocketing. And yet the interesting thing is if we look at it, outdoor workers have lower rates of skin cancer than indoor workers. Well, riddle me that, first of all, not you, but just <laughs> those who are skeptical. Second of all, um, why is it that since we've avoided the sun as a society significantly, we spend 92% of our time indoors, 92% of our time indoors, and we're wearing more sunscreen and more sunglasses when we are outdoors, which is so rare anyway. And so the sun causes skin cancer. Why wouldn't we have seen more skin cancer when we were 
in the sun? And why are we seeing so much more when we're out of the sun? It doesn't really make sense if you really think about it, right? Um, it implies that the sun isn't the cause of skin cancer. Maybe it triggers skin cancer in people whose bodies are already toxified, but it's not the cause. And so I, I just think people should be aware of that. Secondly, or third, fourth, fifth, whatever, wherever we are now, there's actually studies showing that people, there's a, there's a, a massive Swedish study conducted over many, many, many years looking at all these Swedish women and their lifestyle practices, trying to understand on a population level what factors, and these are very light-skinned people, keep in mind, who would supposedly be the most prone to melanoma and whatnot, according to the more traditional philosophy. Well, these women, you know, they looked at all their lifestyle factors, smoking, not smoking, the foods they ate, the foods they didn't eat. Uh, for example, sunbathing, not sunbathing, or not really actively avoiding or seeking sun. And all these factors over many, many years of their lifetime, and this is many, many thousands of Swedish women who were in this study, they found that one of the main conclusions from this very large population study over many, many years is that the risk of avoiding sun is on the same magnitude as smoking. So that avoiding sunlight is as bad for your health as smoking. And that the women who actively avoided sunlight had double the rate of death from all diseases as the women who actively sought out the sun. And those who were just kind of in the middle, not really actively seeking, not really actively avoiding were right in the middle in the occurrence of diseases. It's called all cause mortality in scientific literature. It just means death from all causes, cancer, heart, heart disease, autoimmune disease, aging, whatever, um, infectious disease. And that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big finding. Like people don't, people aren't aware of the research that's been done. The sun literally keeps people healthy. We make vitamin D, we weed out cancer from our, with a healthier immune system. So the, it, it's I'll t like, to be honest, Stephanie, my view is that it's, it's really uh, symbolic of our society. We're focused on superficial things. People want their skin to look like it hasn't been touched by anything, but yet they'll, they're willing to let the entire entirety of their, of their health fail just to keep their skin perfectly pure. Of course, we might look slightly older over time. It doesn't mean we're going to look bad. I think people who have a nice, healthy glow in their 80s and 90s or even 60s and 70s, even 50s, generally look better than somebody who is looking pale and sickly because they've avoided their sun their whole life. Not to be so, um, you know, uh, I don't want to offend anyone, but that's really, it's, it's really worth people considering. Like, do you want to be vain and superficial and avoid the sun? Or do you want to have health and vitality? And... Yeah, maybe someone will develop some sunspots, but if people eat a healthy diet, take care of their skin, don't overdose on sun, generally they're not going to look bad. The people who are the people I meet who lived in Malibu their whole life out in California and surf, a lot of them, unless they're like a, a sailor who's overdosing on sun every day, yeah, they might have leathery skin. But somebody who just gets a healthy dose here and there, maybe they surf, they live a healthy lifestyle. These people are the ones who look the best in old age, not the worst. And they also, again, don't die of these all sorts of modern diseases that many of which come from avoiding the sun. So I just think people have to weigh their values. Like, am I going to be superficial and worried about just the appearance of my face and, and make my skin look like a baby's my whole life? Or do I want to have sunlight, which is going to make me healthy? And, and ultimately, again, people who have sun, in my experience, look better as long as they don't overdose throughout their life. Yeah. There's if something is the concern. Yeah. And th there's something there. Um, I can't quite articulate, but I think that there is a fear that we have societally around aging, that it is just the skin. So everything that we can do to, you know, as you said, like our skin looks like it's, you know, hasn't been touched by the sun. 
that we wear visors indoors, we're wearing SPF, you know, 60 or whatever it is inside um, the house. There's this general fear, and I hear this a lot from women in perimenopause and menopause, this general fear of aging, even when we start to see menstrual cycles change, which we do see in our 40s and our 50s, of course, and then eventually the cessation of, of the cycle uh, in, you know, whatever it is, early 50s usually is the average age, 51, 52. There's sort of a death um, and a grieving that happens. And so I think that part of this big push uh, around not allow, like sunscreen all the time, you know, it, there is a... Uh, a rooted fear potentially in, in aging. So I don't know, I don't know if you have anything to say about that. That's just yeah. kind of my observation. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Specifically with sunlight, uh, I know that there's been some research that talks about uh, you're going to think that this is a bit of a stretch. Uh, sunning our genitals, uh, p- specifically with men, uh, has been shown to augment testosterone production. Um, and I know that there's been um, primarily in, I'll say in Encinitas, all the love to my people in Encinitas, California, who are really into, or I've heard really into sort of sunning, let's say the perennial, uh, you know, the perennium in and around the genitals for men, uh, for women. Is there any, um, and I say Encinitas because, you know, everyone is a little bit, you know, happier and, you know, they love to hug trees there. And I, mm-hmm. I, I'm like, I'm a tree hugger too, you know, like I'm a chiropractor by training. So by definition, I'm a bit granola, but Encinitas, you know, that we take it to a little bit of a higher level there. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to me, talk to me a little bit about, is there any justification for uh, hormone augmentation specifically with sunning our nether regions? Yeah, that's funny. Um, first of all, I'll tell you, it's funny. I'm actually in Encinitas at the moment. So that's <laughs> hilarious. You can't, it's, you're, you're very tuned in. Uh, now, do I fall into that camp? I would say personally, absolutely. If I had the privacy to sunbathe nude, I would. I mean, there's a whole movement of people. Not, I'm not personally like a nudist per se, uh, again, I used to, from the people I was studying and the mindset I was following, I used to think that clothing was like the fall of civilization and that when we, of humanity. And when we started wearing clothing, it was like this great fall. And people in the nudist world, even I have, I met a friend who's a, or I have a friend who's a nudist, and he was saying that um, that in the Bible, you know, when G- Adam and Eve were in the garden and G- God says, "Who told you you were naked?" You know, like in their sort of blissful ignorance, they didn't know they were naked, and that part of our fall was thinking that there's something shameful about our biology and our body. Now, 
I've heard different perspectives from someone I people I, I admire very much, in particular, a friend of mine who studied in India for many years as a doctor and is uh, was a monk for several years and is very much in the yogic and traditional Ayurvedic medicine uh, mindset. And his perspective, another perspective countering was that there's actually an advantage to clothing because it allows us to operate from our higher chakras, our higher energy centers. So sort of the human functions, our heart, our throat, our pineal gland, our third eye, as they say, our crown, and to kind of keep this area more active versus our animal level, which is what, you know, most animals operate based on just sex, food, survival, and forcing and energy. So that actually covering ourselves, even like Native Americans would often cover themselves with at least a loincloth, just somehow the not putting so much attention on genitals, uh, which everybody knows kind of how mm, powerful that pull is when people are obviously in a sexual relationship or, you know, there's a very strong pull there. Uh, and so I thought that was a very interesting alternative perspective that there's an advantage for us covering ourselves to a, to some extent in order to function at this because I couldn't imagine society as it is now operating if everyone was just walking around naked all the time. I mean, maybe it would, but it seems it almost seems that there is some advantage in development uh, from that. The technology, you could say, of clothing. Now, should we be covered all the time? I think definitely not. So that all that being said, I do think from a, from a vitality and health perspective, when we have the chance in, in privacy, or even on a public beach, like to, to be in the nude and sunbathe, there is certainly evidence to your question that it increases testosterone in these hormone levels. And if we were in a, you know, it's interesting too, like back when we were living in a society where everyone was outdoors and men were out working or fighting or whatever, and, and, and people were living in a much more natural environment, it may have made sense for people to be like covering up down there because, you know, if if every guy today had the testosterone levels of, of men like 2000 years ago, the world would be very different. It would be uh, oh, just 50 years ago, yeah, even 50 years ago. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Exactly. Like it, yeah. it, it'd be different. So maybe there was an I can't I don't know. This is just I'm going way out on a limb here, but maybe there was some kind of almost advantage like people were able to kind of function better societally. You know what I mean? Like people get things done instead of just, you know, being aroused all the time or just being, you know, so, um, how do I say, so just fighting and full of that, of that energy. I'm not personally, just to be clear, I am the, the last person to be a fan of the, the system kind of dampening people's potential down, but I'm just putting it out there. Maybe there was some benefit to that a few thousand years ago when people were literally like men were like warriors and this and that, you know? That's the, we're in a different society today. Now, as you know, and you just implied it, the average guy in, in his 20s or 30s or even teens often has testosterone lower than their 60-year-old grandfather. You know, that's that's something that's that's actually happening, sadly. And so getting out and getting our genitals exposed to the sun is probably one of the best things I think that a guy could do for their health, for their vitality, uh, for their energy. And in particular, in a society where we do have an, an you know, unfortunately, an epidemic of uh, both men becoming feminized and women becoming masculinized. I don't know what the correct term is there. But anyway, where, uh, you know, there's a, at least from what I've, I've observed, there's a general sense of frustration among women. I know that they can't find partners who are really going to take care of them the way that they feel they want. And, and that's not every woman, but 
many I've met. And um, then, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting thing that's going on. So I would say I support that practice for sure. There is evidence behind it too. I think part of the testosterone problem also is in sort of the obesity crisis that we see as well. So that we see as, you know, we've been talking about some of the potential um, ways that someone can become obese in a modern society. We're not moving enough. We're having processed foods more than we're having whole foods. Maybe we're not having enough water. Maybe we're not having enough sleep because our light exposure has been affected, which we haven't actually touched on yet. Um, But I did want to come back to sunlight and obesity, because we do know that there is uh, a link there, again, coming back to MSH, melanocyte uh, stimulating hormone, when you have an MSH deficiency, we know that that can cause increased inflammation, it can start to um, affect our sleep, and it can also uh, lead to uh, increase in food intake. Um, and you had done a, uh, you had done a podcast on obesity starting in the eye. And I would wondered if you might expand on that a little bit as it relates to, uh, blue light toxicity, coming back to blue light, uh, the hormone leptin, which is our satiety hormone. And I'll throw in, um, my hat as well before you answer this and say that my own personal observation in my N of one, but I'm sure that it can be replicated in many, uh, if we sort of looked at it more formally is that I'm generally less hungry in the summer. I tend to be a bit of a bear (laughs) in the winter, like can't get enough food, at least where I am four seasons. So when there's winter, it's cold, it's dark, sort of dark by five o'clock, um, and I tend to have less of an appetite naturally uh, in the summer, spring, summer, even early fall months. And that's partially because I'm just out more. I'm usually, uh, I, uh, every morning I'm out with my little cup of espresso on my porch. I listen to the birds. I do my little meditation, little thing. Um, but that becomes harder and harder to do in the wintertime. So I actually find that when I am in, when I'm in a warm environment, I'm less hungry, which is just a natural way to calorie restrict. So would love for you to expand on that if, uh, if you had thoughts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So regarding the obesity beginning in the eye, I would give credit to Dr. Jack Cruz. I would point to his work when people want to talk about leptin. He has put together a very, very compelling model of understanding that, yes, again, obesity begins in the eye. That was not my, uh, that was not my line, where essentially the way it works is that we have the circadian rhythm. We talked about it, right? So when we sleep, the circadian rhythm is supposed to operate in certain ways, certain hormones and neurotransmitters and all types of different chemicals are released in the brain that signal and in the body that signal all sorts of different information about the day, you know, your energy status, we produce growth hormone and all of this stuff. If we disrupt our circadian rhythm with blue light, what happens is it, it based on the evidence available and what, what Jack was uh, writing about for many years and still is, it disrupts the body's ability to receive the signal of leptin, which is produced in our fat cells. So leptin is produced in the fat, goes to the brain, uh, into the hypothalamus. And there's this, again, this condition of leptin resistance that begins to occur when we're chronically disrupting our circadian rhythm and sleep with blue light, which prevents all of these natural processes of hormone releases and neurotransmitter releases and everything that occurs while we sleep to repair cells, it prevents that from happening. So what ends up happening is the person, their fat is producing this hormone, which is saying, yeah, we have plenty of energy, we're good. The brain doesn't get that signal. And so even though the person could be obese and loading on tons of weight, carrying tons of weight, 
they, their brain thinks they're starving, which is if you look at obese people, one of the things I've noticed is that they're constantly snacking on carbohydrates. They just need the energy. To, so they have a, a hormone issue going on in their brain. They also have uh, obviously inefficient mitochondria, or I should say not, not necessarily inefficient mitochondria, but their, their bodies are just constantly, they're energy inefficient. So they're actually consuming, consuming, consuming but they're not tapping into the fat they have because their system for doing so has been totally disruptive. And the case Dr. Cruz was making as a neurosurgeon who worked on this stuff, um, you know, and studied this stuff thoroughly is that that process is largely not exclusively, but largely starting with the circadian disruption that happens in the eye. And one of the most interesting findings of this is that in obese children, one of the first things that they know they, they can actually measure that happens even sometimes before they become obese is thickening of this part of the eye called the choroid plexus. And that the chronic exposure to blue light can be actually seen by its effects on the eye in that way. And that downstream effects of that are the hormonal disruption, the sleep disruption, the mitochondrial inefficiency, the disruption of leptin hormones. And so yeah, it is a fascinating concept that obesity could begin in the eye. And one of the things he would say is that it's obesity is an inflammatory disease of the brain because you got to really, you got to think like they would never, ever be biologically beneficial to be obese, right? To be a little bit, to have a little bit of extra weight for the winter would make sense, right? For a bear or an animal that's hibernating for first of all, human beings who don't hibernate. And second of all, yeah, we go through the winter, but again, being obese isn't helping you, we have to understand that there's actually a disruption in, again, leptin in these hormones. It's not as simple as calories in, calories out. Oh, you ate too much. You're going to gain weight. Oh, you didn't like, why is it that some people just don't have the desire to eat so much that they put on that much weight and couldn't even if they tried and others, they barely, they feel like they're not eating that much. They're starving and they're still gaining weight. You know, there's, there's so much more at a hormonal level, which again, back to the beginning, it's driven primarily by light in our circadian rhythm. So if people just want to make it really simple, as soon as we go inside and we're looking at screens in the evening and we're just disrupting our sleep, uh, or as soon as we're not getting that morning sunlight, as soon as we're not out at least a little bit during the day and getting some of the ultraviolet light, which allows us to make vitamin D and ultraviolet A has an effect on the production of the, the chemicals that cause our blood to flow more freely, which is nitric oxide. So if we're not getting these chemicals, these wavelengths of light that release all these chemicals, many of which are studied, many of which probably haven't been studied or discovered yet. We're just playing with fire, you know? To me, the safest bet is get out, get the morning sunlight. And this is what I talk about in the protocol I call the light diet. It's about getting out and getting in the sun in the morning to set our circadian rhythm, getting some sun in the evening as a sort of wind down like sunset, so sunrise, sunset. It's also about getting out in the middle of a day or at least late morning or early afternoon I should say mid-morning, mid-afternoon, depending on the time of year again, as we've discussed, we want to be careful when the sun's really strong, getting that ultraviolet for vitamin D, because you're not going to make vitamin D at sunrise or sunset. So you actually have to be out when it's a little bit stronger. Uh, the, the German scientist and doctor I work with now on light and light therapy products and, and the science actually said, if somebody wants the minimum amount of risk, in his opinion, from the sun and the most benefit from vitamin D, they should actually sunbathe in the absolute peak of the day, the middle of the day, which sounds contra contradictory to what we've shared, but for a limited time, you could do five or 10 minutes on each side of your body, depending on your tan, and that'd be enough. Some people, two minutes is enough on each side of their body. So 
start with, I tell people, start with one minute on each side of your body and build up slowly a minute or 30 seconds each day if you're going to do that approach. As you were talking about eyes, um, my mind went to other things that we put in our eyes or on our eyes. We've been talking about sunglasses, but what about contact lenses and eyeglasses or even corrective surgery? Does that impact? I would imagine glasses. I'm, I'm a, I'm a glass, you know, my glasses are right here. So I, I typically wear, I use glasses for distance. Um, and I would think that that would be a better, you're still probably going to get some filtration if you're, yeah, you're going to get some filtration, let's say, from the lens itself. So you're not getting the full amount of, let's say, blue light. But it still has the possibility to sort of sneak in, especially if you're outside in the morning, to sort of sneak in in between the glasses. But I wonder about contact lenses where it's directly on the eye. Is that Does that also filter light out yeah. or or not? That's not yeah, a concern. They do filter out a, quite a lot of light. The worst part is they actually reduce oxygen levels going to the cornea. It's like putting a plastic bag on your eye in a certain respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, they know this. The manufacturers know this. They try to make they make them transmissive to oxygen to a certain extent. They're never going to be as transmissive as pure air and no plastic or uh, contact lens, I should say. So for me, contacts are a horrible idea. Like everything I've learned... Um, again, from people like Dr. Jack Cruz, the neurosurgeon who, who brought this awareness of light to, to the public. One of the things Dr. Cruz would talk about is that LASIK, so corrective surgery, can actually damage certain photoreceptors in your, in your eye. Uh, and there, this is, again, is there a lot of evidence behind this? Not exactly, only because it's not something people are actively concerned about or studying. The people who are doing LASIK are all for it because it's going to make, it makes them tons of money and, and that's fine. Um, you know, people have to earn a living, but, the one of the first things that would be selected out of the gene pool would be the inability to see what's around you, right? There's no surviving in nature if you can't see what's around you, right? So genetically, we've all evolved to have perfect, phenomenal vision. So this is an epigenetic phenomenon. This is a change in our environment, which is causing so many people to have vision issues. And it's interesting. It's a great, I'm glad you brought it up. If we ch- if we switched from a, a world of sunlight to a world of artificial light and being indoors and not enough sunlight, the first place I would expect to see problems, given all the research I'm familiar with, is the eye, because that's the, the organ that's absolutely the most delicate and sensitive to light. And so those are the organs, I should say. They're two eyes. <laughs> but anyway, the the fact that that is the case only strengthens the understanding and the concept that that the sun is critical for our overall biological health and well-being including the eyes and that artificial light is detrimental um does this mean that people can't reverse their vision issues no actually i'm familiar with many people who have reversed vision issues using natural light exposure blocking harmful artificial light more time outdoors consuming, for example, seafood, which has more omega-3s, which are critical in the eye for vision processes. Uh, There are methods like the Bates method that people have used to restore their vision. There's a very famous in this field eye doctor named Dr. Jacob Lieberman. He's an optometrist, also would make a great guest. I would love to speak to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he helped many people. He wrote a book called Take Off Your Glasses and See. He, he helped many, many people and others, other books, but um, helped many people restore vision through overcoming emotional traumas. So there could be emotional, you know, it, it isn't, it isn't coincidental that sometimes people who have severe emotional traumas can't see, or they're, 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 it's almost like they're 
attempting, there's an attempt by the body to not see, right? Um, I can't help but see a potential parallel there in some cases. So it's, uh, it's an interesting subject. And I think it would be really cool if we created more of a culture around how to help people restore their vision and heal this epigenetic modification. In other words, the genes, these amazing genes we have for really perfect vision that everybody has, because if you made it this far in evolution, you have them, um, you would have, they would have been rooted out long, 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 long ago. It is uh, something worth people knowing. And I think to your point around, you know, spending more time indoors, when we are spending more time indoors, it's typically that we are working on a computer as you and I are talking to each other right now. So this computer, I mean, maybe it's a little further than six inches from my face, but if I had a phone, you know, we have, you know, phones that are very close to our uh, faces for most of the time, our heads are tilted down and there's your training convergence, right? So you're training your eyes to sort of come to the midline versus, you know, you mentioned spending more time outdoors and getting natural sunlight. Well, one of the things that we know is when you are spending time outdoors, you tend to, there's a divergence of the eyes, meaning that you're looking off into the distance. You're looking to the trees that are across the block or maybe even on your property, which are a couple of, you know, they're going to be further away uh, unless you're hugging the tree and you're in Encinitas. Yeah. They're going to be further away, right? Um, right. So I, I think that there's something there as well. And just because, um, uh, I want to mention this for my women who are in perimenopause, what, what, and menopause really, what we often notice is around the age of call it 40, 45, we start to see typically, a uh, we'll say a, a lens that is less pliable. And what you'll notice is that you're, so I'm, I'm my, I'm nearsighted. So I, from, a, I have trouble seeing things from afar. And that makes sense because I've spent most of my life with my face buried in books and papers, right? So I am very strong, nearsighted. I am very weak, we'll say, um, farsighted. And over time, when we get into our 40s and 50s, you may start to notice, and maybe listener, if you're, maybe this is someone, something that you've noticed yourself, we start to actually pull away from, and we start to bring the object that we're trying to read or trying to see down versus being straight out in front of us. And this is a switch from, and if anyone's interested in this, maybe it's just me, but cranial nerve two to cranial nerve three. <laughs> so, uh, so cranial nerve two typically is when we have the eye sort of seed, when we're looking at something directly in front of us versus cranial nerve three, which is where we start to see the eyes uh, tipping downwards. So we might be trying to read a paper, something on our phone, um, and we train that strength because when your head is always tipped downwards and you're on your phone, you're typing or you're on your laptop or whatever, that, that third cranial nerve starts to get stronger. And so you'll start to see this in our forties and our fifties where things you, you, the lens gets a bit stiffer. So you're trying to pull things away again. So you become, you know, you need those, that's when the bifocals start to come, but you need the, you need the object lower than your nose versus being at your nose. So just Fun fact for those of you that care, for the two people that are still listening. I think it's great. Yeah. I think it's phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's talk a little bit before my time runs out with you. I wanted to make sure that we talk about different types of light. Uh, we've been talking about sunlight. I want to talk about moonlight for a moment. I have found with not only myself, but the thousands of women that I've talked to, that the more women spend outside. So they're getting that early morning light. Uh, in I like to, I, I push everybody to have early morning light, um, or just generally time outside, 
the for those women that are still in their fertile years, we tend to line up the menstrual cycle, which is an average length of about 29 and a half days, coincidentally or not coincidentally, yeah, the same not length, not coincidentally, the, um, the length typically of a lunar cycle. Uh, we tend to see a woman's cycle over many, many months. This doesn't happen in the next cycle, but over many, many months, if she's spending more time outside, we tend to see her cycle line up with certain lunar phases. I've talked about this in my book. I've talked about this on the show before. Um, and I think moonlight, you mentioned um, at, at some point in our conversation that it's less strong, let's say, than sunlight. And I would say that it's it would be hubris to think that that does not, it, like the, the pull of the moon, like the gravitational force and strength that the, the moon has on our, on our bodies and on the earth in general, you know, it, we have high tide and low tide because of the moon. We have, you know, the moon stabilizes the axis by which the earth spins around, stabilizes the season. So we know that we're going to have spring for about this many months. We're going to have summer for about this many months. For those of you that live in uh, multi, you know, places with m- many seasons, what is your what is your thought on moonlight, um, the exposure outdoors and uh, menstrual cycles, if any? Yeah, well, so I have to say, first of all, it's not something I've looked into a ton. Uh, I probably would have more if I were a female. But anyway, just knowing how light affects our biology and understanding circadian rhythms and chronobi- chronobiology, there are rhythms that are beyond our circadian rhythm, which is the daily rhythm. And these are, for example, the seasonal rhythms, the annual rhythm, the there's the rhythm of which is the one wave of our entire life, which is uh, one cycle. Um, so there are lots of rhythms and the moon, the lunar cycle is, I would, I would assume and argue one of the most significant of these because besides the change in day and night every day, the change in the moon is pretty significant. Uh, it makes perfect sense to me that women's menstrual cycles follow the lunar rhythm it's something to it's something to attach to uh you know if if the system needs to clean itself or renew itself on a regular basis but not every day well what would you do besides a day if you're just you know looking at what's around and you're you know okay well you know there's the sun it's going up and down every day i don't think i'm gonna you know bleed every day i think that'd probably be i'm just just personifying the mind of God, let's just say that God thinks like this, okay, well, I'm not or that, you know, the female organism, like, okay, I'm not going to bleed every day, that, that'd be a lot, that'd be a bit difficult. So, well, what's the next cue? Oh, well, there's this other thing that's moving, and it seems to follow this rhythm. Yeah, that's probably a good rhythm for me to clean my system and renew my system. Um, yeah, to me, it makes sense that that the next for such a vital process, the next most significant cue in our environment from a lighting and a timing perspective, which is the month cycle after the day would be a cycle that affects some process. And it, for me, for sure, there's no coincidence that it, like how in the world could it be that, that the female cycle, I I, I don't even know the argument that the, uh, that is counter to the female cycle being, directed by moonlight i imagine there are people who say it's just a coincidence but i would if somebody were to say as a scientist oh well it's just coincidence that the circadian rhythm follows the length of 24 hours it's just by chance right there's it has nothing to do with the fact that the sun you know moves or i should say the earth rotates around its own axis every 24 hours that would be the equivalent to me of of 
of uh, which is an insane argument. Nobody in their in their in knowledge would make that argument today. But to me, that's the equivalent would be arguing that there's no relationship between the female cycle and the lunar cycle. And I'm very much inclined to believe the philosophies, a lot of ancient societies and in practically everyone that I've looked at in particular, Ayurvedic medicine in India and Chinese medicine in China, there is a very understood link between feminine energy and the moon and masculine energy in the sun. So you add that to the, to the picture, it seems very obvious. Yeah. And this is not to say, so if you're listening and you're, you're thinking, gosh, like I don't menstruate on the new moon or I don't ovulate on the, on the full moon. That doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. <laughs> it probably just means that you're not spending as much time outdoors potentially. Um, and there could be other factors, not just outdoors, but it could be, there's other, there's other drivers of circadian timing. There's light exposure, there's food, there's exercise, there's other things that sort of drive our circadian, uh, rhythm. Um, it doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. What I often find is, and it's just an observation is the more people spend time out doors, the more over several months they tend to align with. So the new moon, which is where in the sky you actually don't, you can't see the moon, it's black. Um, well, it's still there. It's just the sun is not reflecting off of it for us to see. Um, that's typically bleed week, like that's the start of your period. And then we move into the waxing moon, which is sort of a crescent moon, which is leading up to ovulation, which is the big full moon. And you'll anecdotally, if you go to the emergency room, all the crazy stuff happens right around the right around the full moon, right? Um, yeah. And then we move into the waning moon, which is sort of in the luteal phase. Again, it's another crescent moon, like moving from a full moon to a crescent, and then into the and then into the um, new moon again, the black, or when you when we can't see the moon. Okay, so let's let's think about and and kind of solutions. I know we've been talking about solutions all through this conversation, but if you're someone who um, you know, lives on the East Coast, let's say they're in New York, they're, you know, some, you know, somewhere where we have four seasons and maybe it gets really cold in the winter and they have an office job. So they are inside for most of the day, whether or not um, they're beside windows or not. What are some ways that we can protect ourselves from blue light toxicity? And this would be a good time to mention your company uh, in terms of blue light uh, blocking glasses. I used to um, I used to think the blue light was just terrible all the time until I started diving into the science and understanding that we actually need blue light in the morning, uh, but then not so much as we sort of go through the day. We sort of want more of the oranges and the reds, let's say, as the day progresses so that, you know, you've already mentioned this, like this melatonin production and, and whatnot. Um, and I bring this up because you you were so kind to send me a pair of uh, some of your glasses. I wear them during the day. They're yellow. Um, and I wondered if you might um, talk a little bit about, yeah, I actually have them. Maybe I'll just put them on while you answer this question. Uh, there we go. <laughs> let's get them on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about why someone might consider blue lock, blue blocking glasses, and when we should be thinking about wearing them. And of course, I know that there are different time. There are different types. So there's. I have these or yellow lenses. If you're watching this on YouTube, I have these yellow lenses on right now. But there are also orange lenses, which I've also seen before as well. Yeah. So uh, as far as people living on the East Coast, I grew up in Philly. I kind of get it. Uh, I went to school, I was indoors all the time. 
when we speak about blue light, so we've spoken quite a bit, especially at the beginning, about blue light and its importance on setting our circadian rhythm and in improving our you know function of hormones and neurotransmitters, the way it can and, and does affect metabolism and so on. So we've touched quite a bit of ground. We've inferred to the disruptive effects of blue light. So basically, the main risks of blue light during the day come from artificial sources of blue light. So the sun has way more blue light than any artificial light could ever hope to put out. Not exactly. Actually, you could make a bright enough artificial light to replicate the sun, but but it would take a lot of energy. So, uh, but anyway, the, the sun's blue light is always balanced by a full spectrum of light, including near infrared light, which has been shown to be very protective and healing for our cells, including our eyes, our retinal cells, and so on. As soon as we isolate blue light from near infrared, the the doctor, the German scientist I work with, he's actually shown me live cell studies, and I've been intending to get these to share with podcast hosts, actually, so you could put them in the show notes. I'll see what I can do. But uh, live cell studies of cells exposed to blue light and then blue light with near infrared, and the cells exposed to blue light by themselves actually degrade quickly, more quickly. Uh, the cells, like there's, these are cells in, in glass or in, in vitro, so they're you know exposed to the radiation. They actually degrade. Um, so the cells degrade with the exposure of blue light, there's significantly slower degradation of the cells when near-infrared is also present, indicating that near-infrared is playing some sort of protective role, which likely, based on the mechanisms in the in the literature, has to do with the effects of, of near-infrared light on water chemistry in cells and mitochondrial function. So anyway, all that's to say, the sun is, is, we're adapted, as we spoke about quite a lot, to handle sunlight. Artificial lights have a lot of blue light, but since the banning of the incandescent bulb have very little infrared light, near-infrared light, which offers this protective biological role. Therefore, when we're indoors and we're exposed to fluorescent or LED lights today, there's much more degradation occurring in our retinal cells. And this has been shown in the literature. Blue light increases the production of reactive oxygen species in cells, in the eye. And so protection from blue light during the day is all about protecting the eyes, protecting the retina. Downstream effects of that also include protecting hormones, protecting neurotransmitters, reducing that increase of cortisol. So helping people to be more relaxed during the day, more balanced, have more balanced energy and not be overstimulated, right? So those are some of the effects of basically blue light during the day and, and why we would want to block the blue light. And that's why we make these yellow daylight lenses. Now, this was the second product we created. The original product were what, what I call the red sunset lenses, and I have a pair here. They're, they're practically red. They're red-orange, really, in their color. Um, we call them red. But anyway, these lenses are designed to help support the main protection from blue light that, that most people are concerned about. Um, well, I should say, I should actually say most people today are probably more concerned about screens on the, in the popular, you know, in a population level. And but, screens uh, late in the day, buying, right? Like yeah, screens during late the in the day. Yeah. And later yeah. in the day, like working Even on a computer. Even midday. Okay, yeah. Okay. Worse later in the day, cause it's disrupting your circadian rhythm. But when we're talking about retinal damage, it doesn't matter if it's 7am or 7pm. Hmm. If you're indoors in an office under fluorescent led light, that's isolated from infrared, then it's still a risk of damage to the, to the eyes, given the physics of this light. So, uh, anyway, the circadian rhythm pr protection is, is more 
offered by these red lenses. So basically one is the yellow lenses would be for, and for those who are just listening, I'm holding up the lenses side by side. So the yellow is for daytime protecting of your eye and hormones and so on. So people use these glasses, their eyes relax, their mind relaxes. And we know this from both this, this was at the science implied. And then when we launched the reason the company has been functioning and successful for six years is because the products work so well. Um, we got the feedback from the customers on top of my own personal experience and that of my friends and family and people in the niche. When this started getting out to bigger audiences, people would wear our yellow lenses. And I've had so many people say to me, I used to sit on my screen for 16 hours a day. I still do. I work, I grind, but I used to get headaches and I used to feel terrible. Now I, now I can actually manage and don't get headaches with the yellow lenses. So it's great. Um, they have more energy. They feel better. It's phenomenal. So anyway, the red lenses block the blue light at night that disrupts our circadian rhythm that makes us basically not be able to sleep when we're exposed to blue light at night or reduces our sleep quality because it's reducing the production of melatonin. You can use the yellow lenses in the evening, just to be clear, and you'll still get a huge amount of melatonin protection. It's just that the yellow lenses let in a, a little bit of blue light and the majority of green light, which green light is closer to blue. It has more stimulating qualities like blue especially in comparison to the reds, the oranges, and the yellows, the colors of fire. So anyway, this the red lenses block all blue and the vast majority of green. So I like to explain to people, the yellow lenses are like level one protection, great for daytime protection, also great for w one level of evening protection. The red lenses are level two, which so for the daytime, it's overkill effectively, unless you're in a really poorly lit, meaning a really poorly lit hospital, when I say that, I mean a place that has really aggressive fluorescent lights, a place that hurts to be in and it hurts the eyes. It's stressful. The red lenses could be useful in such an aggressive uh, environment with that kind of lighting that's very, very, again, people can feel zapped when they go into hospitals and the lighting there is anything but supportive for sick people. That's a whole different conversation. But anyway, uh, these are primarily going to be used at night, the red lenses, to protect your sleep. So put them on three, three hours before bed or when the sun sets, that's what I do to keep my circadian rhythm in line with the external environment. And then you find yourself naturally getting tired. Now, if you just drank a cup of coffee two hours prior, or if you're like me and you're really sensitive and you drank a cup of coffee at 2 PM, you might still not sleep. It's not necessarily going to undo the effects of caffeine. However, if you're in a healthy balanced lifestyle, you're not drinking tons of coffee late in the day, or even if you are, um, depending on somebody's sensitivity, we know that blocking that blue light, it's like a dimmer switch on a light. It's just turning that dimmer switch down. It's just allowing the whole brain, nervous system, eyes and mind to relax and people fall asleep more easily. They sleep more deeply. They wake up with more energy and they have more energy to achieve the goals they have in their life. And it's so simple. It's just modifying the light passing through the eyes with, with science and lens technology that we've developed to do just that. And I'll add one more thing, Stephanie, on the glasses, which is that the I didn't have a plan to make a glasses company. I didn't really want to in the beginning. But the thing is that the glasses that were available had either one of two issues or both. One was that they were either unattractive. And so they were maybe they blocked the right wavelengths of light, but they were these safety goggles that were big and bulky. Maybe you remember that if you were into I this do. stuff like seven years ago. Yeah. Or they were kind of stylish, but they had clear lenses, which is still the majority of the so-called blue light glasses sold today. Clear lenses to make it really short for people don't block the wavelengths of light emitted by screens and modern LEDs. I know that might sound like a bold claim. I have a YouTube video called clear light, blue lens, no, clear lens, blue light glasses exposed on YouTube. And I test all the leading brands of clear lenses. 
and show that they don't block any of the blue light coming off of a screen. So I had to start the company because I wanted to have a pair of glasses that I felt great about wearing that looked great and was really high quality and stylish and blocked the right wavelengths of light based on the science. And nobody else was doing it at the time. A few other companies have cropped up and, and started doing the uh, the same thing over the past couple of years, which great. You know, I love having more people in the space, spreading the information and, and br bringing more awareness. Our products are the best still as far as quality and testing and science and focus on all that stuff. And we give the most generous, uh, we give the most generous return policy. In other words, if somebody wants to return their glasses within 30 days, you could buy them, wear them for a month, literally just short of a month. And if you don't like them, if you don't feel the effects return, them. we'll give you all your money back. You can return them even if they're used worn, you know, we'll figure out some, somebody who will appreciate them at that point because we're not going to resell them obviously if they're used. But anyway, so it's like really, it's actually, that's a side note. I do, we, we get a very small percentage of returns, but given the volume we sell, it ends up being, you know, something significant. And then a lot of them are like almost perfect condition, but we're not going to resell anything that's not a hundred percent. I should say we're not selling anything that's not brand new. So you would just take these returned items, which is again, a relatively small percentage and give them to like friends and family and pe people love them and, and people are so stoked. Um, so anyway, yeah, the products work really well. I appreciate you asking. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that there's a link um, for them in the show notes. I want to thank you so much for your time today. I think that this is, like I was saying, first time we've really dived deep into uh, light and light therapy and blue light toxicity and UVA and UVB and sunscreen and all the things. I don't think it'll be the last time, but thank you so much. And I know this is going to be so useful for our listeners. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. Mm -hmm.